If you've made our midweek groups, our sort of we, cl we class them as home groups, um, you'll know we've been moving through a, a new course recently um, that helps us make sense of scripture, helps us read it um, or, uh, and appreciate its qualities and understand how to read it as 21st century believers. Um, we've looked at everything from the appearance of unicorns, which I didn't realize were in the Bible, uh, to dragons, and uh, we've looked at both the Old Testament and we looked at the New Testament as well, and we've looked at the appearance of slavery. What does the Bible say about slavery? How do you deal with it when it comes across? And we looked at the fascinating issue of uh, uh, women and misogyny and women's ministry. And we had a nice debate on that uh, last Tuesday. Um, one of the things that has sort of uh, uh, been a crucial observation for uh, this course is that this is not one book. I hold it in my hands as a, uh, as a single compendium, as a single entity, but this is not one book. Do you know how many books are in the Bible? 66 is an excellent answer. There are 66 separate books in the Bible and they're all distinct and different. And so um, this course that we've been going through and this observation about the Bible helps us to get to grips with what we're reading. That we don't just treat it as different chapters in the same story, but there is something else going on. And, and so at each point and at each book, you're uh, encouraged to appreciate the context, the history, where it appears in the, the timeline. And only after that happens can you sort of then start to appreciate what it is saying now. So um, we've been going through these divine questions. We've been sort of alternating between the New and the Old Testament. The New is often uh, quite easy. You know, uh, we can often read uh, uh, sort of Jesus's words and they are very simple. But in the Old Testament, things are veiled. They tend to be a bit mysterious and they tend to need a little bit of unpacking. And, and, and we often need to get our bearings a bit when we look at the Old Testament books. There is a, um, a general picture in Israel's history that Israel uh, left uh, Egypt and entered the Promised Land around uh, 1200 BC. So um, sort of 3,200 years ago, Israel entered the Promised Land um, and then uh, sort of 600 years later, the Babylonian Empire came in and uh, started uh, defeating the, 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 the two kingdoms, the, the north and southern kingdom of Israel, because it divided into two. And at um, around 587 BC, so 600 years before Jesus, outrageously, Jerusalem was laid siege to and burnt to the ground. And the temple, which the Jews thought was this uh, incredibly sacred place that God would never uh, uh, allow to be desecrated, was taken over by these pagans and destroyed. And there is this massive crisis 
in the Jewish faith. What is going on? How could God leave us so profoundly that the city of David and this temple that he gave such instructions to, to Solomon, could allow to be uh, uh, desecrated? Well, the time marches on. And sure enough, the uh, peak of the Babylonian Empire uh, uh, starts to fall and the Persian Empire comes in 50 years later after uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. And the Persian Empire comes in and they're a lot more friendly to the Jews. And they encourage them to return home. They're like, guys, go, uh, uh, go back to Jerusalem, build it up. Uh, find again your identity and find again and practice that uh, faith that's so important to you. And so the Jews return back to Israel after this period of exile. But after 20 years of being back in Jerusalem, of trying to rebuild the temple, there was a, uh, a despair that hit the nation because things weren't going well. They'd, were, they'd gone into exile, they'd come back to the promised land, but the building of the city, it was not going well, and the temple was not being um, erected well. There was high taxes, and I don't know if you've ever come across this, different factions vying for power. There, are these, there was this one group of Jews um, who didn't like the quality of work and said it should have been like in Solomon's days. Have you ever had that? People that are resistant to change and go, well, it's not like the olden days. You know, it's not as good as then. We shouldn't do anything unless it's as good as that. And then there were the people like, let's just build a temple. Let's just get it up. I don't care how good the concrete is. Let's just erect something. And you had these people arguing and fighting. And after 20 years, very little had been done at all. And so the whole population of Israel was disillusioned. There was discouragement in the hearts of everyone there and despair was widespread. It felt for 20 years that God was absent. I wonder if you've ever felt that in your life. God being absent, where are you? And there was a phrase that this, these were the days of small things. You know, not much was going on. There were no miracles. God didn't seem to be uh, uh, raising up for himself a, a people. It was the, the day of small things, the day of, of, of little remarkable stuff going on. If you've ever sat with a child in a car on any sort of long journey, you'll be very familiar with a particular phrase. Can anyone guess what it is? Are we there yet? That's right. Isn't that funny how we've all uh, uh, experienced it? There is this uh, uh, experience as a child going on, and it's just an interminable journey. You never know when it's going to end. You don't know anything about miles or distance. And, uh, you know, after five minutes in the car, it's like, we've been in here for ages. Are we nearly there yet? All of humanity... It's very pleased to hear that something good is coming. All uh, men and women like to hear good news. We like to hear some, a blessing is coming our way. However, if the time scale for receiving that gift is not set and it's not clear and we don't know how to measure it, 
we can uh, cultivate anxiety in our hearts. We can say, well, where is this gift, God, that you said was coming? Or where is this present that I thought I was having, but it hasn't come yet? And like a child in a car, uh, uh, we can't mark sort of landmarks and distances, and our hearts are troubled. Proverbs 13 have this, uh, has this quote saying, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The idea of you're expecting something, but it doesn't come, and so your heart gets sick. It is troubled. It doesn't know how to handle it. Timing has always been a privilege of God, and timing has always kind of been a curse of mankind. It's a divine privilege of God when he does things. And we struggle to give him that divine privilege. He habitually makes promises to us. And he makes promises in a way that we don't know when they're going to get fulfilled. And it's very easy for our hearts to get sick. Because he says, I'm going to bless you, but you just have to wait. And we keep going, are we nearly there yet? And God goes, we're just going to have to wait. And we go, well, when are we going to get there? And God goes, we're going to have to wait. And there is this moment again and again in our lives where he wants us not to focus on how blessed we're going to be, but a faith in our hearts and a trust in our minds that he knows what, he, what he's doing. The rebuilding of this city after the exile, the rebuilding of the temple after the exile, is a reminder that no matter how slow something seems to take, the point of it is for us to trust God. Things weren't panning out as the Israels imagined, uh, Israelites imagined in their minds. And the same thing can be true in our lives. Things aren't panning out. The time scale isn't exactly what we imagined. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says this. It's a great little passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll read in verse 4. Rather, as servants of God... We commend ourselves in every way. We show ourselves as following Christ. How do they do this? How does Paul do this? And how is he inviting the Corinthians to do this? He says, in great endurance. It's funny how that gets less hallelujahs than blessings and grace and peace and joy. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses yeah this is not really the faith I signed up for as you read this I, I was hoping for something a little bit a bit more victorious perhaps with a little better pay in beatings and imprisonments and riots in I wonder how many of you this is your experience of faith in hard work not floating from cloud to cloud, getting nearer God at every moment, but in hard work, 
where it takes sweat and toil to pursue your faith. Sleepless nights, hallelujah, and hunger. In purity, understanding, patience. Everyone say patience. Patience, what a blessed fruit of the Spirit that is. Patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. In truthful speech and in the power of God. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. I like that double weapon uh, scenario uh, there. Through glory and dishonour. Bad report and good report. Genuine yet regarded as impostors. Paul was regarded as imposter uh, by some. You know, he wasn't quite what they thought a man of God looked like. And that's what it, it says there. Known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet ma making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing, and everyone say everything. The longer God takes in our lives to manifest the answer for whatever it is that we're longing for, for we're yearning for, that we may even feel he's promised us, there is a greater opportunity to lean on the Holy Spirit, to find in him our strength and to illustrate this thing. And I so wanted to return back to James, but we've been doing James in primitive church and I didn't want to uh, um, uh, just sort of return that all the time. But that having a mature faith, and a mature faith is one that is able to be patient. If you are grown up in the faith, you know how to be patient. If you are not grown up in the faith, then you are immature. You are like a little kid going, are we there yet? Are you answering yet? God, why are you taking so long? Come on, God, I want this done. And Paul says it's part of the mature Christian experience to be patient, to be calm, to be able to deal with the passage of time without the blessing and the answer coming with a rock-solid hope that I know God's character, I know that he'll come through for me, that I don't have to be anxious about the passage of time. As we nurture this in our souls, as we uh, um, lift up the importance of patience, we become a blessing to other believers. We become a blessing because we show what it's like to walk this walk, that it is hard work sometimes, that it is not all joy, laughter and worship sessions, that sometimes things can take a bit of discipline. And we also, as we have our experienced faith, we become a signpost for other people. Because without God in lives, the people outside, they're ravaged by impatience. They, they don't know what it is to wait and uh, uh, they move with sort of lust and greed and passion and selfishness and they lumber from one mistake to the next and then they come across Christian who is different. We commend ourselves by our patience, by our stability, by our uh, um, confidence that God is going to do what he's going to say and we don't need to get agitated because it hasn't happened yet. And so 
this temple that hadn't been built and this city that wasn't going according to plan. Uh, the people were not in a good place. They were showing these signs of uh, an immature faith. And so what God does, he raises a prophet, Zechariah. And he raises up this prophet to speak to the people. Um, and uh, Zerubbabel is kind of descended from David and he's the governor. He's not the king, he's the governor and there is a high priest called Joshua. So Zerubbabel is the governor and Joshua is the high priest and Zechariah is the prophet in this time. And now we go to the Old Testament uh, scripture that we're going to read today. If you've got a Bible, turn quickly and easily to the book of Zechariah. Under how many of you know where it is? Where would the book of Zechariah be? So Zechariah is one of the minor prophets, so you know that it's at the end of the Old Testament. Um, some of you have got digital Bibles and you're like, well, I, I don't even know, need to know where it is. I can just see it in front of me. Um, so Zechariah, and we're going to read chapter 4. So Zechariah gets a series of visions and they're all uh, uh, great and edifying and uh, uh, good to read. But we're going to read, um, I think it's the fifth vision in the fourth chapter. And it says this. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up. Uh, like someone woken from sleep, he asked me, what do you see? And I answered him and I said, I see a solid gold stand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it and with seven channels to the lamps and also there are two olive trees by it one on the left one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left so you have a lampstand you have a bowl and some trees that's the uh, image and Zechariah asked the angel who talked with him what are these my lord and he answered, do you not know? No, my Lord, I replied. And so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel was a bit like, uh, he was the governor and he was in charge of the nation at that time. And he was kind of emblematic of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountains, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this temple. His hands will also complete it. This was a big deal for Israel. It had taken them 20 years uh, to achieve very little and suddenly Zechariah was saying now is the time this guy is going to do something and see it completed then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you who dares despise the day of small things and if you are to take nothing else and if you are uh, um, thinking of all sorts of other stresses in your life and just for a moment you tune into the sermon I want you to think of that question who dares despise the day of small things there are days when not much seems to be going on
but God says don't despise them. Don't look down on them. Don't uh, regard them as insignificant. And But it goes on in verse 10. Since the seven eyes of the Lord... Now, God isn't a freak. We haven't got some sort of uh, seven-eyed monster to depict God. Seven is the uh, sort of image of completeness and God's all-seeing nature. Since the seven eyes of the Lord that reign throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out old golden oil? And the angel replied, do you not know what these are? And no, my Lord, I said. And he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. So we have this scene of an Old Testament vision. It has a lot of points that it is very easy just to skim over because we're not quite clear what's going on. We're not necessarily familiar with some of the Old Testament imagery and numbers. And um, so we move on quickly perhaps to a sermon of Jesus where things are a little clearer. But we find here Zachariah, he's asleep. He is rudely, rudely awakened uh, by this supernatural messenger, who, this angel. He says, you know, wake up. I want to show you something. Open your eyes. You're going to see something that has importance for you. And so he, uh, he is given this vision that has spiritual implications. Each point of this vision has implications not just for Zachariah's personal life, but, but for the nation of Israel. And first he sees a lampstand. How many of you got lampstands in your house? How many of you got lamps in your house? Okay, so when you read that, you may think of that, but that is not what the Old Testament is trying to tell you. Not that lampstand in your lounge, which you sort of click and it has a little light bulb at the top. That's not what we're talking about. In Exodus 25, there is a very deliberate detail of what a lamp should look like. It was made out of gold, solid gold, and it had like a single pillar, and then it had six arms branching off. If you've ever seen uh, a menorah, then that's what it is. We're not talking about any old lamp, we're talking about a menorah, which was to provide light in the uh, temple of God. And so Zechariah is having this vision of a menorah with its seven uh, uh, sort of wicks alight. And it provided light in the temple for uh, 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 each evening and going into night, into the morning. And then there's a bowl. And the bowl feeds olive oil into the wicks. This is not an electric lamp. This is not something you have by your bedside. This is a lamp that uh, relies on uh, uh, fuel, and the fuel comes from this bowl. And so you have a bowl, and it feeds oil into the, this lamp, into the seven wicks. Um, and uh, it means that the bowl keeps this lamp alight on and on and on. And finally, we have two trees, and they are olive trees. Anyone tell me what olive trees produce? Olives, it's not rocket science. Olive trees produce olives, and from olives, what type of oil do you get? 
Guess what the menorah runs on? Olive oil. So we have this tightly knit image where everything is sort of brought together. The olives produce olive oil. The bowl pours olive oil into the lamp and the flames run on what? Olive oil. So we find this whole picture and it all ties together nicely. This is a prophetic vision. So don't try and get too hung up by how the trees and the lamp and the bowl all kind of fit together. It's a, it's a supernatural vision and something that you don't need to uh, uh, put everything in its exact place. And so the angel says to Zechariah, revered prophet, chosen one of God, please tell us what this great picture is re representing. Unearth for us God's truth we find in it. And Zechariah goes, well, I don't know. I've got this oil going from tree to bowl to thing. What's it supposed to mean? What are you? I don't know what you're trying to tell me. I haven't got a clue, Zechariah says. And any of us who have struggled in our faith and often feel like that can find in great encouragement that the great prophet Zechariah hasn't got a clue too. And um, the angel goes, bless puts his arm round Zachariah and says, let me explain things to you. The bowl that feeds oil continually into this lamp, they're code for God's watchfulness. He doesn't stop watching. You might think he's wandered off. You might think in these 20 years, this failure of all this building, that God isn't interested, that perhaps he's chosen a better, prettier, more constant people, but he hasn't. God is watching. God is watching the people of Israel. They are in his gaze. And um, the success of this temple being built is not dependent on the finances, not dependent on the lack of funds caused by all these heavy taxes from the Persian uh, Empire. It's not dependent on all the committees that can't agree because they're arguing about the different type of concrete or whatever else to build this building. It's not dependent on these things. God's going to make sure it gets done. Indeed, every insurmountable difficulty, and there has been for 20 years insurmountable difficulties, they're going to flatten out before the presence of God. And finally, he said, uh, the angel says, you see these two trees, these olive branches that are next to the bowl and the um, lamp. These are God's faithful servants. And we know them as Zerubbabel, and Joshua, the governor and the high priest. These are the ones that produce uh, uh, this olive oil. Now, it would be tempting, and, and we might unpack it for a few minutes, but I want us to look at how it all worked out. Now, in a timeline... If you want to go to the future, do you go forward in the timeline or backwards in the timeline? Forwards in the timeline, yes, I'm trying to make it 
uh, as easy to understand. You normally go forwards in the timeline to go forwards in time and backwards in the timeline to go backwards. And so if you were looking at a book and you want to go into the future, would you go left in the book or would you go right in the book? Right. If you want to go forward into the future, if you want to know what happens at the end, you normally flip forward to the right in the book, don't you? This is not true for the Bible because it is made of how many books? 66 books. It's not one book. It is not one single story. It is a whole range of different stories that come under uh, uh, God's collective uh, providence. And so, mysteriously, to find out what happens in the future, we go back in the Bible. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ezra, which is before Zechariah, and um, hopefully that will start to convince you that the Bible is not just uh, one book. Can anyone remember what type of book Ezra is? It's, it's one of the history books. So it's after sort of chronicles um, and judges and all that sort of thing. So it says this in Ezra chapter 6, verse um, 14, I think. Verse 14. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the teaching of Haggai. So he was there at the time. The prophet, uh, um, Haggai the prophet, and what does it say there? Zechariah. What, what book did we just read from? Right, so we read the words of Zechariah the prophet. His books included after the history book. So this is the history, and then we get the words of the prophet later on. This Bible is not one book, it is 66 books, and it is good when we look at it to understand that uh, it's not arranged necessarily uh, uh, as chapters in a, in a normal book that we might find. So uh, verse 14, um, so the elders of the Jews uh, continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, uh, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple. I cannot tell you what relief that brought the people of Israel who had been waiting 20 years for something to happen and it hadn't. Uh, they finished the building of the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. This is the king of Persia um, that came after the empire of Babylon. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel the priests and the Levites and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with what? Joy, happiness, gladness, singing, pleasure, eating, um, hallelujahs. For the, for the dedication of this house, they offered a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. This 
is the answer to Zechariah's prophecy. This is the fulfillment of it. Zechariah said it was going to happen and Ezra recorded it being done. I quite like prophecy being fulfilled in the middle of scripture. You know, uh, something is written down and then it comes to pass and then the rest of us uh, who come a lot later uh, along the timeline just look back and find, oh, you know what, I'm glad I didn't have to wait those 20 years for God to do something. I'm glad I wasn't after there. But we do get to learn and get to have some sort of insight that God is watchful and will bring his plan to pass. Um, And hopefully it also help us see that the Bible is not put together completely chronologically. That there are books classified as one thing and another and so they're put in different places and so when we read scripture we must be sensitive to that rather than think it's something just to read from Genesis to Revelation like all the chapters follow one after the other like a story in Harry Potter it's not Harry Potter it's not a work of fiction it's not uh, uh, written like that it's a lot more poignant and deep and uh, uh, has a lot more richness to edify us with So we've already dealt with a great deal and some of you are tired of history and have absolutely no affection for how all this works out. But I do and so I brought that this morning. But you've looked at in what environment Zachariah was called to uh, uh, preach and prophesy. You have looked at the details of his fifth vision and you've looked at how it all came to pass and it was answered and Ezra records the uh, uh, God's restoration of the temple and in some ways I I feel I could just step back and go the Bible's amazing enjoy it realize it's a little bit more you need to engage your brain more than uh, just a copy of Vanity Fair or something but enjoy it and and find the richness in there and look for the details and the names and, 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 and trace the faithfulness of God in that but I I wanted to uh, finish with some little snippet um, little Jerry Springer word of the day just to uh, uh, edify you the people of Israel are not the only ones to experience hardship Um, I think particularly people in our congregation are very familiar with hardship Many of us can recount times that our souls have cried out because stuff just seems too difficult. And some of us during those times, it's really easy to worry that God's work has slowed down. You know, perhaps our evil has just caused God to wash his hands of us or He's got bored and gone over to the richer people who can do more impressive things. Or that God is maybe even a figment of our imagination and that all that we thought was him is nothing but sort of coincidence uh, and uh, invention. This can happen through ministry failures, financial struggles, health concerns, uh, relationships that have tanked and loads of other things that I'm sure you could add to that list of stuff that just causes us to feel 
overwhelmed and go, well, where are you, God? You know, this isn't what I thought it was supposed to look like. And then, and this happens a lot with Christians, things don't pan out. We ask or blame God and then our faith just fizzles away. You know, like church becomes a little less delightful. We avoid prayer meetings and home groups. We avoid socialising and and fellowshipping because we're blaming God. We're unsure of what he's doing. We're unclear why we're walking through this valley of the shadow of death that we are. And that God breathed trust in our hearts that the Holy Spirit uh, uh, brought in just sort of fizzles out. But hopefully, perhaps we remember the observations at the beginning of the talk about the importance of patience for a mature spiritual believer. That we need to be patient. That impatience is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. Patience is. Contentment is. An ability to go through time and still hold on to God's promises and go, he's going to come through for me. That is a sign that your walk with God has caused you to grow up, that you're not a little baby needing your nappy changed every five minutes. It's a sign that you are uh, growing up in the faith. And we who are familiar with this, and I can look around and there are uh, many experienced Christians, we aren't thrown into confusion when calamity hits. We aren't suddenly like, oh, God doesn't exist or he doesn't love me. Calamity hits, we go, oh, you know, it comes and goes. I'm familiar with these things. There's rises and falls. When crises come, we aren't spun out and suddenly like gone, God is a lie, church is nonsense, Kevin's a liar. Or we don't get the prayers answered that we want and suddenly spiral down into despair. We don't because we walk with God and we've seen these seasons come and go. That we are calm and content and peaceful and patient. But amongst the Christians that can cope with these things, we've got new Christians. Christians uh, um, that uh, have only been following Jesus for a little while. And we've also got the immature in our midst that wobble at every disaster. That they're fine if things are going well, but the moment something hits their purse or their relationships or their health, suddenly their knees go. When things go pear-shaped, they go from regular happy people to God is my enemy. In Zachariah's vision... There were these two trees. And uh, in the Hebrew text, I quite like this. They are uh, the sons of the freshly pressed oil. These two trees, they're the sons of the freshly pressed oil. And that's very deliberate. Because it should call in mind the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Zerubbabel and Joshua were. They were sons of the Holy Spirit. And I believe 
amongst all the other things that I could bring out from this passage, there's a call for each of us this morning to be sons and daughters of the freshly pressed oil, for us to make room for the Holy Spirit in our lives. That doesn't just mean that we're great at worship or self-motivation, but we are able to look at small things in our lives and see the green shoots of growth there. They may not be big, they may not be large, they may not be uh, 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 significant to other people, but we have learned over the years to be perceptive at the green shoots of growth and thank God for them. If you've got a Bible, turn to our last bit, um, last reading today, and uh, as I sort of uh, polish up what I'm going to say. says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Uh, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. And that's a, a remembrance of what happened to Mount Sinai, because they could not bear what was being commanded. But you have come to Mount Zion, verse 22, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have uh, come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. Therefore, um, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The grace of God may be missed by people that don't know him. The grace of God may be missed by the inexperienced and the immature and the believer that wants a quick fix. But I pray this morning that as I close that we will be attentive to the small things, that we will see him at work in the small green shoots of growth that others may disregard as unimportant, but we know are important as signposts to what God is going to do in the fullness of time. 
that we live our lives, even today, perhaps things go wrong, but we see stuff that God is doing that perhaps others would reject as inconsequential, but that we value and hold on to and appreciate. It doesn't mean we never admit we're struggling, and it doesn't mean that we, when someone tells us they're struggling, that we don't uh, just dismiss their struggles and just talk about the blessings of God in their lives. But it does mean that in our own lives we pay attention to what God has done that is worth being thankful for. It does mean that we have an appreciation for the salvation, for uh, the good thing, the good material things he's provided, of the good relationships that we know about. Uh, whatever in our lives that we are to pay attention to, this thankfulness is something that we need to work on. Rather than count all the things that we don't have, we need to be good at counting the things that we do have. And this means as well that as we mix with other people that are struggling, that are not very good at counting their blessings, that are uh, falling away from being thankful, that we help them, that we point out the moments of growth, that we uh, illuminate the points of God's goodness in their lives. Because there will always be something to be thankful for in each of our lives, no matter whether we are a mountain peak or in a valley trough. And as our thankfulness, both individually and collectively increases, Hebrew says, the louder and more passionate our thanks become because we are uh, disciplined in how we think and disciplined in how we see God and disciplined in, in how we orientate ourselves towards each other and him. And then we become a thankful people and then we become a people of praise that when, in, when heaven invites us to sing eternally, we just say, yes, please. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you um, that it is always helpful in season and out of season. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this prophecy in the midst of discouragement and despair. Lord God, I pray that we would not be a people to despise the day of small things, but we would always be on the lookout for uh, evidence of your grace and mercy. That, Lord God, we would be uh, fastidious about it. We would be passionate about it. That, Lord God, even today, when uh, uh, things may not have gone well or, or uh, uh, things are looking pretty grim for the week ahead, that we would be good at, at focusing on the moments where you've obviously interrupted life and done a good thing and heavenly father i pray that we would be good at drawing other people's attention to this as well that this wouldn't be some sort of pity party of christians who mourn the lack of answer prayer but lord god that we are uh, acutely aware of you doing things even small things uh, uh, that uh, you are bringing about for your own glory and goodness and Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be good at being a thankful people and that our praise and worship of you uh, would come out of that. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.